Okay, we're going to do something a little different today. How many of you guys uh, listen to podcasts from time to time? Okay, and how many never do? Okay, well, we're going to do something a little different. It's going to be kind of a little bit of a podcast format uh, that we're going to kind of do this week and next week. Um, And I hope you guys that do, that this kind of helps engagement with what we're talking about, what we're going to do. And you guys that don't and don't like this, bear with us. In two weeks, you'll be back to normal, okay? So uh, anyway, another thing we kind of hope to do with this is uh, model something for you. Adrian and I were talking just yesterday that, you know, we'll sit down a lot of times and talk to a family member or a friend or somebody, and we may talk about, you know, our football team or politics or uh, movies or whatever's going on. But do we sit down and just talk about God and faith and matters of faith and especially using a text? And so maybe we modeled that for you a little bit because we'd like to encourage us to kind of go back to that a little bit more and have those conversations, which will also help you, I think, in your, in your small groups and such. So, Adrian? Right, so just to clarify and reiterate, this was his idea, so... <clears throat> That's true. If you don't like it, you know where to go. He is so, submitting to his elder. It gets complicated. All right, so uh, one of the things that we do in our culture is uh, we have this practice of standing for things that we honor, that we value, that we, we revere. Uh, and so we don't do that a lot in our gatherings. But I want us to do that this morning. Um, we're going to read the text that we're going to be wrestling with and talking about this morning. So I want us to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read this. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord this morning. 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Continuing in chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and, there, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he, has not be, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You can have a seat. So, in the last couple of weeks, I started reading a new book. It's kind of on Christian apologetics. And the author, she's answering kind of some of these hard questions of faith. And the author, oftentimes, in making her point, she cites examples from Harry Potter. And she says, like, this is kind of like that, and she'll give this example. And I can kind of track, and I kind of get it on a basic level, but I, I know very little uh, about Harry Potter. And so oftentimes, I'll ask my wife, she has a master's in Hogwarts, and uh, <laughs> she will illuminate what's going on. And, and she'll say, okay, so here, and just in one minute, she'll, this is like this, here's, here's what you need to know about this, here's what happened before, here's what's coming after. And in that minute, I'm, I gained so much more knowledge and insight and understanding into the point she's trying to make. And, and we know this, right? Context matters, the background matters. So, real quickly, what's going on here? Uh, when and where is John writing this? What's the background? What's the context? Yeah, and, and this particular text, I think that's really important. This was written around the end of the first century, uh, probably somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D., uh, <clears throat> probably during the reign of Emperor Domitian, uh, who reigned as Emperor of Rome from 81 to about 96 A.D., uh, the historian, kind of interesting, Pliny the Younger, called Domitian, quote, the beast from hell who sat in his den licking blood. He also was probably the object of John's inspiration uh, in referring in Revelation to the beast who blasphemes heaven and drinks blood of the saints. Uh, he was the first emperor to officially uh, title himself as God the Lord. Remember that. Interesting. He also insisted that people uh, hail his greatness and accolades and call him Lord of the earth, uh, invincible, or thou alone was another title. Uh, and he led the third wave of emperor-sanctioned uh, persecutions of Christians and Jews during the first 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So that's kind of our context. Now, it appears in this scripture, it's kind of interesting that uh, John is really emphasizing that Jesus came in the flesh. Why is he putting so much emphasis on that factor of the nature of Christ? Right. So you see, throughout 1 John, uh, John really emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. And Brian's talked about this a little bit, but there was this popular belief system at the time called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism said that Jesus was just spirit. Or, or some variations that Jesus was just human for just a little bit of time. And so the problem is, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, then you deny the humanity of Jesus. And if you deny the humanity of Jesus, then you deny that Jesus suffered, 
that he died, that he rose again. And so this is a big deal, and John's going to emphasize this over and over and over, that Jesus came and lived and died. He was divine, but he was also in the flesh. He was human. You know, and John's uniquely positioned to kind of make that argument, isn't he? Right. I, this summer, some of our students, we went uh, camping for a couple, three nights, I guess. And, and it, when you're camping, <clears throat> you experience each other fully in a lot of ways, right? You see each other, you get up early, you eat together, eat your meals together, uh, you spend all day together, you smell bad together, like you really get to know each other. And John spends three years essentially camping with Jesus. And so John knows the humanity of Jesus. He, he sees Jesus when he's tired. He sees Jesus when he's hungry. He sees Jesus when he's frustrated. He sees Jesus when he's beaten and dies. He sees Jesus when they take him off the cross and when they bury him. He sees Jesus when he's resurrected. And so John is uniquely qualified to talk about the humanity of Jesus. You know, the physical existence, the suffering in the flesh, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is critical and core the gospel message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if this isn't true, if he didn't come in the flesh and suffer and die and is resurrected, then to use Paul's words, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Uh, Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Yeah, so it's critical. In in 1 John chapter 5 verse 6, there's this really kind of weird verse that says, this is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. One of the commentators I was reading, he said, he called this the most confusing text in the New Testament. And, and it is very confusing, kind of weird. But I think what John is doing again is he's just emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. And so he's using water and blood. He's using, the water is Jesus' baptism, that he was divine, that at his baptism, the Spirit came upon Jesus. The Father says, this is my Son, whom I'm loved, with him I'm well pleased. And then also the blood of Jesus, that he lived. He wasn't just divine, that he lived, he bled. If you think about it, it's John's gospel. In John 19, verse 34, John says, the soldiers pierced his side, and from his side blood and water flowed. That, that Jesus was not just water, he was not just spirit, he was blood and water, he was human and divine. Yeah. Now, today, thinking about Gnosticism, this denying that Jesus came in the flesh, you think that's still an issue today, or is it something different, something else? I was thinking about our students, our teachers, as they go back to, to school this week. I think in a lot of ways, our world, we, we struggle with reverse Gnosticism. So, Here's the example. In, in your schools, in our schools for our students, it's really not that controversial to say that you believe that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. It's not that controversial to say that Jesus was a human who lived 2,000 years ago. Most people will not debate that. What is controversial, though, is to say that Jesus was a son of God. It's to walk into your, in your schools and your workplaces and say that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and he still lives. That the tomb is empty. That Jesus was flesh and spirit. And so it's, it's the hard thing in our world today is to believe that Jesus still lives. That he lives in our hearts, that he walks in our halls. 
One of the things that John is clear about throughout 1 John is that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the only way. In the Gospel of John, he says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So here's kind of where it gets tricky. How do we communicate that Jesus is the only way in our pluralistic world? Yeah, that goes against the very nature of our world today because any claim of exclusivity is immediately given some real pushback, I think, and such. And one of the ways I would kind of look at that, because I know Jesus is not egotistical about that. He's, he's just stating truth, and we know his humble nature, that it has to be a truth that comes out of that nature. Uh, several years ago, I was reading a book, I think it was about David Gibbons, and he told the story of a conversation he was having with a person who was struggling with the claim of Jesus to be God or divine. And, and he said, he asked him a question, he says, what is it? about Jesus that you would not want to be God. I mean, he's self-sacrificing, he's love, he's compassionate, he's uh, forgiving, he cares for the poor, uh, he has righteous indignation against those who hurt others. What is it about him you wouldn't want to be God? And that, that, I think if you tweak that question a little bit, maybe that's the way you communicate it. What is it about the nature of and teachings of Jesus that you wouldn't want to be the way to God. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Did, was John solely communicating to Christians in that day, or do you think in 2021, that this is still an issue for us today, that we still struggle to wrestle with what is from God, what is not from God. It's still the issue. Uh, The the spirits of the world did not stop speaking, and I don't believe God stopped speaking. So it's still an issue today, and, and it really deals with whatever we wrestle with. One of the dangers is that we tend to believe what we hear that agrees with what we already think. Uh, The problem of the echo chambers, right? Um, And um, so there's still great danger in that. And social media really plays and works off of that reality. Uh, The algorithms used by Facebook and Instagram and Google and et cetera all send messages to our devices that they know we want to see and we hear based on our you know, our likes and our preferences and, and those kind of things. You've probably had some of those things happen to you. You're just like amazed that, you know, you got this message on, on uh, you know, Facebook or Google that how did they know, you know, kind of thing. Well, it's based on what you have indicated. And they do this because they need us to stay engaged, see their advertisers, and buy their stuff. Uh, John warns us not to believe everything you hear or read or see. And I think he would say today, even if it's on the internet, okay? And this, so this is important for us in our day and our time, I think. Really important. There's, we've talked about this. There's a guy named Alan Jacobs, and he's written some stuff, and it's been really helpful for me, and he uses the analogy of sunk costs. So if you know house, car, investment, whatever, you have all these sunk costs that are invested into this investment. And he says, our, our ideas, our thinking is similar to this. And so he says, we all, whether we realize it or not, we have sunk costs invested into what we believe, into what we think. 
So we, our, our sunk costs are, we, we have identity invested into this position. We have years and years of posts invested into this position. We have friends that we have made and friends that we have lost based on our thinking. And so it becomes really hard to understand and test what's right from wrong because people may come to us and they may present a very reasonable position that's counter to what we believe. And instead of being able to hear that clearly, we naturally realize we have so many sunk costs invested. And instead of being able to go, you know, that's a really good point you make. That's a really interesting idea that you have shared. We know, but what about what I've already invested? And so because we have so many sunk costs invested into what we already believe, it makes it really hard to test the spirits. So if this is still an issue and it's really, really important, how do we test the spirits? And one of the things that we've talked about is... It's hard to test the spirits when we've neglected the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's hard to test the spirits when we've neglected the Holy Spirit. I mean, John says this throughout here. Verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, he says this is how we recognize the spirit of truth. Uh, in five, chapter 5, verse 6, he says the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. The spirit leads us in to truth. And, and we have this gap in our theology in that we believe that, that the enemy still tempts us, but we don't believe that God still speaks to us. Um, sometimes I think about it like this, like we, we pray to God, we believe in Jesus, we ignore the Spirit. And when we have this gap in our theology, it makes us really, really, really vulnerable. And vulnerable to what's going on. And so just like the Christians 2,000 years ago needed the Holy Spirit to discern the spirits, I think we need the Holy Spirit today to discern the spirits. Um, so kind of getting into day-to-day, what does it look like to test the spirits in our day-to-day lives? Where do we start? Yeah, and I get this question, it seems like a lot, in classes, in small group, and, and where I kind of go with it, I think, are three things. So number one, I would test what you're hearing uh, in your mind and what you're hearing from others, test that against words of Scripture, especially the words of Jesus. Uh, the spirit of truth will not be inconsistent with the words of Scripture and the words of Jesus, okay? Uh, number two, I would test what you're thinking, hearings, uh, etc., against the advice and counsel of a spirit-led group of people. Uh, that's why strong, active healthy, godly, small group is so critical to have that in your life. You need people around you who are not necessarily an echo chamber. You don't want that, but are willing to speak truth to you even when it's hard, okay? Even when they know you're going to push back against that. You need that. You need that in your life. And I think number three, in this text he says, um, in verse four of chapter four, kind of four through six, he said, he's put his spirit in you and his spirit is greater than the spirit that's in the world. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Test what you're hearing against some good common sense. You know, so many times I think where I'm tempted to do something, I know, don't you? Right? I know I shouldn't do it. I know I ought to do this, not that. But I, I don't listen to that. And, and Paul warns us in Ephesians 4 verse 30, don't quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think when we 
hear that and know that's the thing to do, but don't, that's, we're quenching the spirit, you know, in our lives. Um, Irwin McManus tells a story about his son. His son is off at camp. His son gets into a fight at church camp. And the camp calls him and says, your son got into this fight. He's done with camp. He's ready to come home. So Irwin drives up there to get his son from church camp. And they're packing up his stuff. He's trying to talk to him, trying to reason with him. He's not having it. Pack up his stuff. They're getting in the car. They're ready to leave. And Irwin asks him, he says, is there anything in you that feels like you should do something different? And, and his son says, yes. And he says, okay, what, what, what is that? And he said, I, I, think it's, I think it's God. He said, what's it, what's it telling you? And he said, to stay. And he just talks about what if his son had neglected that voice, had ignored that voice. We have to learn to listen to that voice. Okay. If you're struggling with this, here's where, here's the elephant in the room. This is what I like about back and forth. Um, the thing that um, in our day and age, how do you test the spirits when you have friends and family on both sides? Like, how do you test the spirits when there are good-hearted followers of Jesus on both sides of an issue? What do you do? Great question. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's tough. And we live in that, don't we? Especially in this day and time. Uh, I think, first of all, just one thought I have is that I, I, first I'd test the issue. Is this one of the issues that it's okay to have difference of opinion on both sides of the issue and still be in relationship and fellowship and, you know, all those kinds of things? I, I think that's a lot of where that plays out. Uh, I'd recommend Rick actually at the Hills uh, Church Fort Worth did a series last fall, I think it was, right before the election on kind of uh, the, diver- diver- the divisiveness in our culture. And I thought it was really good. And one of the things he talked about, one of the, just an example he used was, you know, uh, both sides of the aisle, both parties, I think, care about the poor. They have different views on how to help the poor, okay? And that's okay, you know. So it doesn't have to always be, well, you're right, I'm wrong. There's just different opinion about how to accomplish or do certain things and stuff, maybe. So I, that's just one thought I have. Yeah. I, I would say humility is key. So, I mean, First Peter says, God, I don't know how you, how you feel about humility, but, you know, First Peter is pretty clear. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then there's one book, especially in the Bible, that focuses on wisdom, that focuses on discernment. It's the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs just over and over and over throughout Proverbs says, pride comes before a fall. That humility is key. And so I think whenever we get into these divisive things, we have to just take a posture of humility. Take a posture of listening. Uh, this week I was reading something by Kara Powell, and she said, anytime she's in a conversation with someone, and she's tempted to talk, to jump in. She, she always asks herself, tells herself, wait. And wait is an acronym that stands for why am I talking? <laughs> and so anytime she's tempted to talk, she says, wait. Why am I talking? Do I need to be talking or do I need to be listening? And then also I would say, and this is, uh, this is hard, is to practice <laughs> fasting. Scripture talks a lot about fasting. 
That when you are struggling with something, when you need discernment, humble yourself before God and lay your, yourself at the face of God and fast. Seek his will. And that requires a lot of humility. To give up food, to give up media, whatever it is, and lay yourself before God and say, God, I need to hear from you more than I need anything else. Um, and so I would just challenge you, encourage you, practice fasting. In chapter 5, let's kind of turn here a minute. He, he talks about his, that this faith and love of God, he ties it to the concept of obedience. Uh, this is love for God, to obey his commands. Obedience is not something we talk about a lot. It's, it's kind of we tend to think, oh, that's legalism, uh, that's oppressive. How do we reconcile faith and the love of God with this idea of obedience. Right. So in our hyper-individualistic world, we kind of repel at any mention of obedience. And so I want us to try and like reclaim this word of obedience, reclaim our picture of obedience just real quickly. Um, if you've heard me talk much, one of the, the things that's just kind of core to my faith that I really love is Eugene Peterson. He ties together faith and obedience like this. He says, faith is a long obedience in the same direction. Faith is a long obedience in the same direction. And if you think about anything great, it requires a long obedience in the same direction. Again, this is kind of controversial in our world where you're always supposed to turn and shift and innovate. Um, But if you think about like a great company, uh, they've chosen a mission and they've applied a long obedience in the same direction. If you think about a great marriage, a great marriage is a long obedience in the same direction. A great athlete, has practiced a long obedience in the same direction. Brian's talked about this a lot in this series, that faith is a journey. Now, part of our journey will have these keystone moments where we decided to follow God. But that's not the entirety of our journey, right? My wife and I each year practice that one-time decision that we made to marry each other, which is a commitment to a long obedience in the same direction. And then also I would challenge you to think about what is burdensome. Are the commands of Jesus burdensome? And too often I think Christians and non-Christians think the commands of Jesus are burdensome. Now Christians think the end justifies the means, but we both sometimes think the commands of Jesus are burdensome. But are they really? Think about this. What is more burdensome? To serve God and give God your life or to serve yourself? What brings more peace? To do what God wills or to do whatever you want to do? What brings more pain in your life? Saying yes to God or saying yes to the world? And I think about just in my own life, how burdensome sin is. How burdensome broken relationships are. And too often in my own life, when I feel those burdens of my sin, I run back to the things that cause those burdens and just repeat that cycle. But what if Jesus' burden is actually light and his his yoke is really easy? Jesus didn't call us to one-time statements of faith, but to a life of faith and obedience. He said, go now and leave your life of sin, follow me. Faith is a long obedience in the same direction. 
Last question. In John, in chapter 4, John says that we are from God and have overcome the world because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. In chapter 5, he says that everyone born of God overcomes the world. Uh, what does John mean, do you think, by this line of thinking, this idea of overcoming the world? Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting uh, phrase, actually. You know, we don't think about that most of the time in our lives, that we overcome the world. We just try to get through, you know, life and the world. And yet, uh, John uses that terminology here. Uh, John records Jesus using that terminology at the end of chapter 16 of his gospel, the, the gospel of John, where Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Uh, I think if we remember, first of all, the context, uh, this is a time of persecution under Domitian, a, a Caesar who has considered himself God the Lord, Lord of the earth, king, and like every Caesar, I think since Julius Caesar, he claimed to be the son of God. Remember that, uh, that divine kind of uh, anointing by God. Speaking into that context, Jesus says, or John says, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and King, not Domitian, and that Jesus is the Son of God, not Domitian, you will overcome. Uh, in that world, so many believed that if you want to live and live well, you better bow to the emperor. In fact, uh, Shane Claiborne in his book, Jesus for President, which is a book about Revelation, he talks about going to the marketplace in that day and time, and you had to have this stamp or tattoo on your hand or arm that was this mark of Domitian or mark of the Caesar uh, that allowed you, said you had bowed to Caesar and therefore you could go and buy things in the market. It's what John refers to as the mark of the beast in Revelation. Um, John says, don't believe that lie. Acknowledge Jesus as King and Lord. John says, put your faith, and it comes back to faith, in Jesus as King. Believing Jesus is king also has practical implications, I think, for us today. I think we're tempted to give our allegiances to earthly kings, earthly issues and situations, whether it's our job or, and some of these things are not bad, or maybe it's uh, an earthly leader, a uh, politician, or an earthly government or nation or power. And we have our preferences on all those things, but we have to test very carefully to make sure those things don't have our allegiance. I may live under those powers, vote my conscience in regard to earthly things and my preferences, but my allegiances are to King Jesus only. By having my allegiance only to King Jesus, I overcome these earthly systems and powers. Uh, they don't control me. I don't live in fear of those things. I don't live in fear that if my candidate doesn't get elected or my party doesn't have power, I don't buy into their fear campaigns that you see. I may have a preference, but I know Jesus is king, and it will be okay. Uh, I believe that Jesus is the divine son of God, not Caesar nor anyone else. Uh, we would never call somebody else son of God, but if we look at them almost as they're more than, and we give them worship, so to speak, which is worth that they are not necessarily entitled to, that only God is entitled to, and we have to we have to test our hearts all the time to make sure that's not happening. Uh, that can be a religious leader, an actor, an athlete, a successful person, any of those kind of things, political leader. But if I do that, I'm going to be disappointed, I'm going to be disillusioned, I'm going to be disheartened because they will fall. I guarantee you. They will die. They will lose power. They will go away. They will let me down. There's this, 
a story a lot right now in the Christianity Day, a podcast about the fall of Mars Hill Church up in the Northwest that was led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. Huge mega church and all kinds of other things under it. When he fell, now within just months, that is all gone. That's what happens when we make someone who they are not. Okay? Um, The world rolls on, but we can be assured of this. King Jesus lives and reigns forever, and he loves me, and he'll always be with me, he says, even to the end. That's where we want to put our faith. Um, Let's send our elders and ministers to their places. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, So y'all go ahead and take your places. And Adrian, won't you kind of summarize this for us and conclude it? Okay. So three things we want you to hear this morning. Number one, resist the reverse Gnosticism of our day. Look for God. Believe that Jesus is still alive and he still walks in our halls. Number two, test the spirits. Walk in humility. Take a posture of listening. Wait. And then three, choose a long obedience in the same direction to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and overcome. This week was a tough week in our house because this was the first week in two weeks that we didn't have the Olympics. We love the Olympics in our house. Uh, So this week we had several Olympic competitions in our house and I'll just get through that. Uh, But if you watch the Olympics, especially early on, one of the people that they focused on was Katie Ledecky. And Katie Ledecky is the greatest female swimmer of all time. She has seven Olympic gold medals, three Olympic silver medals, 15 world championships. She's a world record holder in the 400, 1800, 1500. Um, She's incredible. And I was, I was reading Rowdy Gaines, who's the NBC swimming analyst. He's just awesome. Uh, he said this about Katie Ledecky. He said, she doesn't have especially large feet or hands, which you really need to push a huge mass of water. She's 5'11", which is tall, but is certainly shorter than other great swimmers. And she definitely has a subpar kick. So what separates her? What makes her so great? Um, before one of her races in the Olympics, they showed Katie at age eight on a family vacation. And they said at this point in her life, she was already swimming like an hour or two hours a day. And then they showed her at age 12. She's on another family vacation, still practicing. And they said at this point in her life, she was already swimming like two or three hours a day. And then at age 15, she's an Olympic gold medalist. And I heard Katie and she said, I think I just love the repetitive nature of practice and regimen. Why is she so great? I wonder if it's this is like that, that every day she has woken up and decided to make the commitment, the sacrifice, to choose a long obedience in the same direction. And so here's what I would leave you with. What direction is your life pointed? Is your life directed towards self-interest or towards Jesus? I love our sign outside right now that says, it's never too late to start over. And you may just like your new story more. This morning, um, if you want to choose a new direction for your life, don't try it alone. We're here for you in, in any way that we possibly can. Let's stand and sing.